0: Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Okay, folks, um, coming up later this hour, Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. And have you ever wondered about racking your brain? All right. At a slightly earlier slot, um, Humour Statistics Time with Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, Research Director. Uh, Jonathan, a bit of a more light-hearted look around the world, or at least, um, or we'll just say what it is, the world of leisure for those that can
1: afford it. Well, it's not light-hearted if you're in the leisure business. No, <laughs> you're right. Your, and these are your valuable people, you know. A key thing about research is always about getting to understand people who aren't like you or who you can't really understand too well and making sure your products work. And, of course, when it comes to the other half, or should I say the other 13%, um, they're a very wealthy and interesting crowd to research. And Ipsos has actually been researching these people around the world for a long time.
0: Yeah, you said the 13%, you're talking the affluent
1: yeah, so of course it's different in every country but it, basically the way to look at it is um, people earning more than $190,000, yeah. household income more than 190000 Okay. You know, obviously it just holds depending what country you're in. Yep. And, um, yeah. And it's interesting Like when you do the work in Asia and it all comes down to handbags and luxury cars and stuff like this but we've got some results we can share about international leisure, overseas travel and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially as we're in the long weekend and, the you know, anybody listening is presumably still in New Zealand and they may have just gone down to the batch or the campground. But these people have, on average, five international leisure trips a year.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, so much for the, the annual trip to Sydney or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot. Of course, we always have to bear in mind that um, in New Zealand, where you've got a huge amount of distance to travel, it's a bit of a different thing that you can live in Italy and then just drive down the road and you're in Switzerland. Yeah. It? That's your international trip.
0: Well, sometimes you can't even tell when it happens.
1: <laughs> well, no, I've, I've done that kind of a thing. I remember cycling in Euro years ago, and you'd ride over a mountain pass, and then you go to use your Euros, and it's like, no, no, Frank's here. And you're like, oh, I'm in Switzerland now.
0: I walked, oh, well, to <laughs> Me- Me- I walked to Mexico by mistake. Couldn't believe I was there. Well, were you allowed back in? that was the tricky bit. It's really easy one way, but it seems to be ratcheted to be more difficult the other.
1: Funny that. Funny that. Anyway, Anyway, I think you mentioned last week, um, Mexico is a massive immigration problem too. We're pretty coming up from the south. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're amongst a lot of Asian areas and then also um, European areas, but amongst Asia-Pacific, you're looking at the average spend of a travel trip. Uh, The Australian's. And yeah, it's interesting because you know we always think that you know even from the own perspective if we have our a trip to your trip to China or um um uh, Indonesia or, or India sometimes our dollar goes a long way so we, we think of that as being cheap. But nonetheless, you add the airfares and stuff and see that the average um, spend of an Australian tourist when they're going overseas is um, around about 10,000. Now it's 10,000 US, so probably about 15, 50 grand or something like that at the moment. Yeah. So they're spending quite a bit. China just a bit below them. Um, and then you're on Singapore and so forth. So it's interesting seeing that um, you're getting Australians spending 12 to 50 grand a year mm. on their international travel. Um, which is pretty nice because you know a couple mm. of grand on a quick five hundred dollar year here to Bali or something like that. Yeah, this and is probably not
0: up. this is probably not surprising that a lot of American affluents stay at home because uh, they, <laughs> yeah. they don't realise there's another world out there, or they go to France,
1: Paris, France, or Italy. Well, the most common um, destination is Mexico, right. Yeah, so can the Americans, that's the thing. We looked at Americans on their own right. So Americans, number one overseas travel destination is Mexico, followed by Canada. Mm. And interestingly, I was in Canada on the 4th of July this year. And uh, where we were, there were a lot of Americans because they, they never crossed to Canada where it's nice and quiet. Yeah. Because every campground on the 4th of July is just chocker Again. in the States. So it's just like, well, nip over the border and it's nice and quiet. mm um, and then, yeah, it's either, either the French or Italian thing or the Bahamas, so that's quite interesting, you know, but but again, you see it's that, that proximity. So and just
0: a big difference between younger travellers and older.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's not too... Um, too um, surprising, you know. We all think of our own things. So the younger people, we're in so yes, there are young people, and these very affluent households and stuff. And so obviously, you know, when you think about it, they like to go to plays off the beaten track, and you know, exploration, discovery, and stuff. Because we all know that at the other end of things, you've got people that want to go on cruises in their old age and stuff. But um, even when you look at the places, you know, it's interesting because the number one place for these millennials, um, these European millennials, where they want to go, and it's the Seychelles. Good God! Yep, yeah. and then Colombia and Peru. So, you know, that's you do the Inca Trail. So you can just see they want something that's oh, yeah. a little bit exotic. You know, go do Machu Picchu. Right. go try some
0: Strap some, something some. onto themselves for the trip back and see if they can. Yeah,
1: make it sure it's all fully Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> but then, of course, if you don't want to do that, so you can see here on the beach some kind of exotic forestry, you know, um, uh, jungle, or Dubai, mm. that's for the lifestyle and, and, the, and the shopping and everything. Yeah. And then Cambodia. Because mm. Cambodia, I do know, is really getting up there. It's like the latest place that um, people are investigating. I even see this amongst New Zealanders because it's like, well, everybody's sort of, China's changing and Japan's all changing, Hong Kong. It's like, what's well, a place that's, Relatively safe now but still quite quite a different experience.
0: I'm surprised by the baby boomer stats. Uh the number one for well this is Europeans, yeah. isn't it? Namibia.
1: Yeah. But you know, I'm thinking, well, I know a baby boomer that's just had a big safari in Africa. Cool. Um yeah. But Namibia is a wild one. I have to, I have to admit, um, and that's followed by Malaysia, South Africa, Romania, and Lithuania. Mm. So imagine, you know, Romania and Lithuania. Those are obviously incredibly cheap.
0: Well, hats off to Namibia for getting this done. Yeah. I mean, tourism is—it's—it's <laughs> it's just such a, an important uh, money maker for these countries, us included. So
1: hats off Namibia, well, well done. Well, that's the thing. What are they doing? We're not doing. Yeah. But you know, often it's the experience. Like we know that. Um. Places like Romania and Lithuania, and even um, Kazakhstan, and those places are really getting on tourist's radar because they're not—they haven't really been what you might call spoiled by global capitalism. Yet. You yeah. can go to those places, and they're not full of tourists, and they're quite old-fashioned. Well, they
0: are now. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's always the way, isn't it? You know, you know. When you, I laugh when you see people on the press talking about, "Here's my secret location."
0: Yeah, called Queenstown yes, or something, and look at them yeah. all.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we, we've seen that in New Zealand um, and even locally where I live. Um, as soon as a place pops up in TripAdvisor get stuck in good ratings, mm. the, the numbers go through
0: the roof. Yeah. Um, okay, we've yeah, got a few a nice minutes. One. We've got a couple of minutes for Marketing Psychology 101 again. Uh, the right place and the right time. Product placements.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's what I call it. Right place, right time, and then I changed my subject, actually. Right place, right time is what you call a really good advertisement. Yeah. But um, product placements, and people may have heard of this, but it's becoming more and more common, and now there are a whole di- the Businesses that are all arranged, and the whole purpose is to get your product placed in the right places. Mm. And um, people might be familiar with it. it's basically when you pay to have your product. Uh, prominently featured in a movie or a TV program or something like that. Yeah. So you see the hero using a given product or a brand. And so, of course, it's a, you see it being used in a great way with a great hero and all the rest of it. And it raises um, brand awareness. It actually goes back to you know some of the very first radio shows. You know, that's where the whole term soap opera comes from, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, there was a blatant sponsorship rather than a um, product placement. But there's some really good examples here, and it's one of those things to keep an eye out for, and, and one, it's one of those things that once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. Yep. You know, you um, particularly like you watch any tv program where people are pulling out laptops most they're apple laptops oh god yeah it's cult we that. yeah we accept that because hey we all know apple laptops but you know they're actually very much a minority product in the laptop scene mm-hmm. statistically you're more likely to get a lenovo or a dell or a Hewlett packard laptop being yeah. pulled out in any given office yeah but funnily enough when you watch the events it's always an apple um do you remember the opening scene in the I Robot? There's um the hero is always using Converse speaker um sneakers. Right. Um and he it was there was, was when Wolf Smith was in the movie and um, there was a big deal about him having his Converse and they were retro. So it's it, was, it was scared in the future, but he locked classic retro, which was a, the way to have him wearing a pair of sneakers that you and I could actually go and buy. Even self- though it's a fine movie in the future. <laughs> Back
0: to the future, yeah, the self facing Nike. That was everywhere, yep.
1: Yeah. Yep, Tom Cruise is Ray Barnes. Um, go back and watch the Matrix. more using Nokia. Oh, da 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 Yep, yep. And the most famous one, of course, think my name is um, Reese's Pieces. How E.T. loves having Reese's Pieces. Sorry, you've cut out... Have I? Yeah, I'm you back me again? Yes, thank You've you. You've got me again. Yeah. Right. Just keeping everybody um, on, on the edge. Reese's Pieces were um, in ET and originally I think they were going to be M&Ms. Yeah. And it came down to who saw the value and who paid up. Yeah. And it made a huge difference.
0: Ancestry.com has been scripted into Neighbours, which is just weird. <sighs> well, there you go. And I wonder, did Aston Martin ever pay anything for that product placement in the early Bond movies?
1: Yeah, they probably didn't. The Star Wars. No. Um, Ian Fleming included it as the consensual English car, but of course, once you're yeah. going through to the late 70s, and they're not doing much. But of course, <laughs> that was where there was the big issue, because of course, every time um, James Bond ordered his Martini, he never said what brand of Martini. No, but we could all, all see the yes, Aston Martin with Andy. Yeah, but. But when it came to the martini, if anybody notices that in Skyfall, here's a Heineken instead.
0: Ah, yes. And anyway, Aston Martin, <laughs> I don't think they actually needed the ad- advertising, really. Did they? Or maybe they did. I don't know. Within that affluent market.
1: Anyway. Well, you're, you're saying, did they need it? Because we all know Aston Martin. But if they hadn't been in James um, in Bond prominently for the last 40 years, would you be there Twelve? Yeah. Or where was the brand? Yeah, who
0: knows? Yeah, if it had been yeah. TVR, they might have been famous now. Okay, good one. Hey, thanks very much, Jonathan. We've got, got to go to the movies next, and we're having a look at uh, rock stars in the movies, the flops and the remarkable performances. That with James Crute. Jonathan, thank you. Ah, weekend variety wireless. We're at the movies. Hi, James. Oh, hi, Graham. How are you? Oh, very well. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're talking rock stars, musicians, stars, that have uh, dabbled in movies and more because we know there are huge figures like Elvis Presley, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Um, but um, there are plenty of other interesting duds and successes as well.
2: Yeah, look, this has all come about in light of Lady
0: Gaga. Actually, I'm surprised she
2: isn't starting to use her original name in terms of uh, her oh, yeah. acting performances. But, of course, she is the new ba- Bab Streisand in A Star Is Born, the new Duty Garland, yeah. the new whatever the fourth adaptation was. I can't remember. But, yeah, I mean, of course, it, it is a story that lends itself uh, to having a... Uh, a um. Th- um a music star in the lead role essentially Yeah, um, it does. And, and I'm trying to remember what was, what was Chris Christopherson's music like at the time that he was in the Trizian version in the 70s I, can't, I can never remember which sort of way that was whether this is what helped him to dabble into music or whether
0: he was fully fledged no he was fully fledged as yeah. much as a songwriter as anything else some of his songs uh, were covered by others and made really huge Sunday Morning Come down Johnny Cash, that sort of thing. So there you go. And he yeah. was he was actually more famous. Um, we've just got interesting facts today. We probably won't even touch much on the subject. Um, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, no, Sports Illustrated magazine as up and coming football star. Wow. Before he was famous as a musician. He played rugby union Is a big rugby union fan. I could believe that. There Actually,
3: there's a lot of
2: guys from that era. I'm I'm trying to think. Uh there's, there's a couple of others uh from that sort of period. And Nick Nolte, I think, is another huge union man. George W. Bush. Yeah. No kidding <laughs> that's Texas A and M or whatever. No, Yale. Yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> true, moving on. True. Moving on.
2: Look, I, I think another another um A famous musician who probably wasn't that well known for acting
0: a lot would have to be Dolly Parton in the early 80s. Great actress and a magnificent songwriter.
2: Well, that's right, and, and I and my colleague Graham Tuckett here at Stuff, he he said it quite well when he said that Dolly Parton perhaps summed up *A Star Is Born* better
0: in three minutes than yep. it did in more than two hours. *I Will Always Love You* is essentially a summing up of the plot of *A Star Is Born*. Oh, and it's a gorgeous thing. And yeah, you know, best it. little whorehouse in Texas. Yeah, and that fits her um her upbringing. She was re- she was really really poor as a kid, and all she also wanted to look like was the hookers in town. <laughs> And she told her mother so, and she succeeded. Bless her. Yep.
2: look, ni- you know, nine to five sort of uh, helped really put her on the map, and it's it's almost surprising that she didn't really go on. I mean, that that that's really been the case for the lot of musicians. I think they they there's this period where they kind of dabble in it. They don't necessarily get bad reviews, etc. They might do right. a project that doesn't really suit them, yeah. but but you know, I can't think that Dolly Parton really started a lot of stinkers. No. But 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 yet she kind sort of just drifted away from it there was a time
0: there was a time in the 40s and 50s when you could barely pair apart magnificent singers or musicians with their acting ability and i do think frank sinatra had it
2: yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And then you look in the the 70s and 80s, and there are a lot who sort of uh, did things that they might not be so. I mean, you look at Jagger. Yeah. You know, we, we, you know, he never really convinced. I mean, the the movie I've seen the most of is probably his most recent, which would be what 25 years ago, was Free Jack. Yeah, did Ned uh, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Uh, yeah, he 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 was very big. And of course, then you look at Bowie, mm. and and his sort of output that he started in the 70s with the likes of the man who fell to earth and then you've got merry christmas mr lawrence the most famous role in in a generation's eyes in terms of labyrinth yeah you
0: know and and yet nice try nice try kind of makes muster but nah it's there's a big drop off between their music ability and their acting isn't that really honestly
2: yep Yep. And, and then you get the kind of stunt kind of thing, like we've had what? We've had Keith Richards and Paul McCartney in oh. the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean series. I mean, Keith Richards was sort of a no-brainer as soon as Johnny Depp, an impression of her yeah. <laughs> and playing jack sparrow i mean that was just how much money can we throw at keith richards to be in this oh. um but uh, let's look at uh, a, a musician who's really only made one movie but it was kind of his story you know there's the that thing where they sort of fictionalized the story of the musician in turn 50 cent has kind of done it as well but yep. uh, eminem Yeah, Uh, Eight Mile is this kind of amazing, gritty drama, Detroit sort of thing. I mean, it's very much his story. He actually was quite impressive, never really bothered to act again.
0: Yeah. Hey, outside of cinema, cinema, talking more TV, um, Ice Cube, my God, that's an equal career, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I I think so. I think very much. I mean, I guess that's more a case of him going legit Hollywood rather than South Central (laughs) sort of thing. You know, just kind of shifting his focus slightly. Mm. Um, But then we look at, I mean, uh, now I can't remember, Ice-T. Sorry, Ice-T, yeah. Well, no, 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 there's both of them who have various careers. Um, I forgot my ice. What, but one of them, of course, and I can't remember which one, which is terrible, has a son who, of course, was in Straight out of Compton playing him. Mm. And, uh, you know, and he's
0: equally uh, impressive. Yeah, I mean, uh, I tea with the TV thing. Pa- pardon me, young rap fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, an, another one who kind of
2: has done quite a, well, a, a number of movies and then has kind of dropped off the radar again is Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Like, he played uh the Napster in- inventor in the social network. He was very good in that. He even almost uh, was top billing in a couple of films of sci fi thing called In Time, Runner Runner. Um and, and sat opposite Kate Winslet in uh Wonder Wheel, I think, a Woody Allen film. Mm. But but yeah, and, and of course was in the great Cohen Brothers um inside Lewin Davis as a kind of folk singer yep. you know but but again he's you know kind of flatlined again you know. it's it's just interesting and of course one of the other sort of almost one hit wonders has to be Beyonce yeah who really as she transitioned from being part of Destiny's Child to being a solo star
0: was was really the standout of Austin Powers and Goldmember we don't count Russell Crowe because his music <laughs> doesn't count now uh, two massive stars. Anna Reeves
2: as well would oh, be another yeah.
0: one. Two massive stars that I think battered above their, uh, punched above their weight, but also on the same pattern as, you know, it didn't really go greatness. Ringo Starr was quite good. Um, and Roger Daltrey, of course, acting in his own band's rock operas, amongst other things. He was Okay. Yeah. What about Sting? I mean, Sting was another...
2: I mean, of course, there was the debacle of, uh, what is it, almost wearing a nappy in that epic Dune uh, movie. Um, But, you know, he he managed to generate a bit of menace. I I guess he ended up being sort of typecast. Yeah. I mean, and then, of course, there's good old Madge, who... um, impressed for a while and then started making really terrible films with her then-husband Guy Ritchie.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: you know, Avita obviously was kind of a no-brainer that that would work with her. Yeah. But but even before that, she'd kind of, uh, things like A League of Their Own she was very good in. Yeah.
0: Um, You know, and even some of those early films uh, like uh, Desperately Seeking Susan. Almost on a par, acting in music career. Um, almost. Meatloaf, I thought, did well. Yes. That's true, and, and, and not
2: just in the rookie horror role. You, you, no. He's one of the kind of unsung heroes of Fight Club. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know, it's interesting, it, it, and it's hard to put a, um, a, a lid on or exactly, you know, which have been the more successful in terms of genre, you know, which kind of actors have worked better. Um, I think Alice Cooper is going to be in a speaking of television, is going to be playing Herod yeah. in Jesus Christ Superstar, which yeah. I think
0: is on this weekend with John Legend in the sort of lead role. Yeah, and go, Prime Rocks is doing a thing on that on Tuesday night, so heads up. I'm, I'm interested, because I like Jesus Christ Superstar, the whole the whole thing, the music and whatever. Um, and Alice Cooper, of course, played Freddy Krueger's dad. God, he <laughs> like is the Fred- Street Series. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he is Freddy Krueger's dad. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, just one real neat tip of the hat, actually. Well done. Our own Marlon Williams is in um, uh, The Star Is Born. born, He gets a freaking line. This is (laughs) is stardom, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think it is. For
0: for Littleton, it's stardom.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Where he's from. Uh, Hey, come on. The Frighteners was Littleton's moment of stardom. Oh,
0: you're right. Yes, yep. Good one. Oh, well, take a bow, Littleton, and Christchurch, for that matter. Um, James, thank you very, very much. And we'll talk to you next week. That was fun. Good one. No worries. Max Cryer up next, answering your questions on words and stuff. Curiosity not only killed cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for word, books, word, word, words of comfort, words of... Here he is, Max Cryer. Uh, in the hot
3: seat for another Saturday evening. Hello, Max. Uh, no, it's not. I have to confess to the listeners that the seat isn't actually hot. It's just focused. Figured,
0: oh, it's a focused seat.
3: Yes. Right,
0: OK. <laughs> um, we asked the questions. All right, off you go. <laughs> actually, that wasn't a question at all. What a clumsy beginning. We'll rectify it here on in. If you want to <laughs> ask Max anything to do with the English language, words, their origin and meaning, place names are allowed as well, of course. Just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Use the email form. I'll pass them on to Max. You can ask on the Facebook page as well and the postal address, PO Box, 880 Simon Street, Auckland. All right.
3: The first word this week, labour. I thought we'd look at labour because it's going to become uh, used quite a bit over the next few days. Um well, o- labour weekend. Yes. Mm. The origin is believed to be the Latin labor, meaning toil, exertion, Hardship, fatigue, a noun, and that traveled into French as labeur, meaning tribulation, task, and in the 1300s it drifted across the channel into English as a noun, labour. Uh, you hear it like that in the story about Hercules and the different labours that he had to tackle. All right. Separate jobs. Each of them was a separate labour. But during the 1300s, the word labour became a verb, usually meaning manual or physical work, to toil, keep busy, exert yourself, keep take pains, strive. And over a 100 years following that, it started to refer to non-physical things, like saying that something or someone was laboring through their third year at university or laboring under a delusion. They weren't actually doing any hard work with their hands, but they were- uh, uh, You do hard work with your brain. With their brain. It's never lost its application to physical effort. Um, Although the use of the word is modern, a device to help with some jobs was called a labor-saving device. Do you remember a labor-saving device? Yeah,
0: very big in the 50s.
3: And then after that, the word gradually took on a, a use way different from physical action because in 1776 it came first known reference to a labour of love. Something that you were doing just because of an emotional feeling. Like today, Max. Love today. Today? Yes, this is a labour of love. I like it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, um, this was done by uh, New Zealand source first unofficial demonstration of what became known as Labor Day when the combined work unions in Wellington held a demonstration honouring the ideal of an eight-hour working day. Now, work done by members of various unions, and these gatherings continued until the government passed the Labor Day Act. In 1899, it made it the first Wednesday in October as a holiday called Labor Day, though there was actually no legal requirement for employees to work only eight-hour days. Um, And anyone will tell you that seamen and farm labourers and hotel, restaurant, shop employees, by the very nature of their work, often work much longer than that. Plus, the establishment of Wednesday didn't suit all the provinces, so 1910, the government monday Labour Day, which now happens on the fourth Monday in October, though its connection with the fight for an eight-hour working day has faded, and most New Zealanders look upon Labour Day as just a holiday. Just another holiday. Just another holiday. Really? Yes. Mm. Yeah,
0: I w- always felt a little bit of uh, a pang of real attachment to the celebration of Labour Day. <laughs> I mean, New Zealand um, did some good things around this th- uh, this kind of affair quite early on.
3: Well, the move for an eight-hour day started way, way, way back, long before Labour Day was ever established. Oh, really? Oh, yes. But was never. It was sort of under Pericles, and uh, in, in four, <laughs> 450 BC, was it? No, no. When, when settlers started to arrive in New Zealand, a man called pa Hill... Uh, originated a lot of hard work about keeping employers treating their employees as people not just as cattle yeah. and that eventually became Labour Day, uh, which was a great celebration, but it's now something I think we take for granted. Okay. Yeah, probably so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All in all. Uh, a listener has asked, what is a pipe dream? Good question. <laughs> this is another thing
3: that you just say and don't know actually what you're saying. Well, it sort of cropped up recently, the listener tells me. Uh, The listener heard an MP of ours refer to a suggestion from the Prime Minister as a pipe dream and wondered where that came from. Well, it dates back to the 1700s in England and in the following century after that, at which time it was an attitude that, this is the good bit, smoking opium was treated as more or less acceptable. Uh, The fictional hero Sherlock Holmes um, was depicted as visiting an opium den Author Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a real-life user of opium. Enthusiastically so. And, yes, and though, and though opium was known and used in Britain, in Britain um, the expression pipe dream was believed to refer to hazy euphoria and dreamy experience felt by opium smokers, and it actually originated in America. Uh, The pipe dream was first noticed in 1890 in the Chicago Daily Tribune. That's the first known time that it appeared in print. And uh, it wrote rather scornfully about the possibility of men being able to fly machines and referred to being able to navigate in the air as, and here's the quote, it has been regarded as a pipe dream for a good many years. But they really were referring to smoking opium? Yes, yes. Far and In, in 1890, the idea of men flying planes yeah. was considered to be a, an a pipe dream. Yeah, a pipe dream. Something. I like honestly it.
0: thought I, if you were to, uh, if I was to just have a guess, I would have thought it was something to do with a long pipe and it, it's a long way away <laughs> to the end of the pipe. You know, it's like way over there, sort of dream. Now, I
3: think it's concerned more with what's in the pipe. Far out. So later, this, this expression was referred to as pipe stories. And then they grew into dismissing one speculation as being consigned to the wastebasket as the pipe dream of an opium devotee. So, bits and pieces over time certainly nailed it to opium. And uh, smoking opium and the effects it has seems to have been wi- fairly widespread in both Britain and America. Mm-hmm. Um, although the Chicago paper printed the term pipe dream, it didn't reach England until later, first observed in print in 1904. It occurs in a novel novel called Pam, which had the line, Look at the sea and tell me in your wildest pipe dream if you ever saw anything lovelier. Caused by smoking a pipe of opium. So that quite pleasant line seems to refer to the euphoric effect caused by a pipe of opium. But over time, and probably influenced by the enforced illegality of opium smoking, the term pipe dream has taken on a stronger association with the fact that since opium is illegal whatever plan is being criticized by someone is aligning it with the impossibility of it ever actually happening it's only a pipe dream it will only occur when you're in a state of days it will not become real because it is being offered as if you were in a daze of opium samuel taylor Coleridge
0: proved that to be inaccurate because he dreamt that Kublai Khan thing in an opium in a laudanum induced haze and got up and wrote it down. And that to you makes it true. Well, there a dream became <laughs> a reality. Story. You can go read it today. Well, it, it's
3: it became, not a bad thing actually. It became a printed story. Mm-hmm. I think. Th- if somebody dreamt of airplanes flying in the sky and was scorned for it, oh, yeah, yeah, they could have been told later on what they dreamed was true. Yeah, but it's a rather amorphous subject, and I think to stick to what the listener actually asked pipe dream. Oh, yes, all right, I'm just having a conversation for <laughs> goodness sake. You're yeah. having a pipe
0: dream, Lord. That was the thing, popular thing. That's what Coleridge used to go down to the shops and get. You could just get it at the dairy.
3: Yes, I've never been clear about it. It's a lot of ladies used to use Lord
0: Tincture them. of opium. It means yeah. you didn't have to light anything up or shoot anything up. It, you just drink it. It was oh. this liquid taste of peppermint. It, no, it, to say. it did send people to sleep, though, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of part of the idea. It's a side effect. No. <laughs> <laughs> A relaxant, shall we say. Yes, indeed. Okay, the origin of boycott. This is a famous story, isn't it?
3: Yes, it's um, a real person. It's one of those situations where this a term went into the language because of a real person. He was an Irish landlord called Captain Charles Boycott. And in the 1800s, there was an organisation called the Irish Land League fighting for the rights of farmers. And late in the 1800s, when the harvest wasn't turning out, well landowners were being pushed to make a 25 percent reduction in the rent they were charging to the farmers who were actually renting their land now boycott the man met with the irish land league and refused to reduce rent by 20 percent but grudgingly offered 10%. 10%. Now, the farm community was outraged and it influenced the community to ostracize the landlord. The Land League convinced every laborer that was working on or around Boycott's land to stop working there. In 1880, there was a march onto the property of Captain Boycott, the agent on the estate, and the party against whom the popular eye was chiefly directed, and in a very short time, every labourer and servant employed on or around the place was driven off and cautioned not to work there ever again. Now, this situation became well known, and the news media of the time began to use the name boycott as a symbol of mass avoidance which is how it's remained. Within time, it crept from the Irish newspapers into the English newspapers, and in 1908, the Westminster Gazette reported that, quote, the local Labour Party is inclined to boycott preference voting. End quote. And that... That use of the name remained in use to this very day. It means a deliberate, noticeable turning away from some proposition, from a person, from a firm, from a shop or a theory, and so effective was this Irishman's name. This is the odd bit. So effective was his name and the movement named after him that versions of it drifted into French, Dutch, Russian and German which is usually the other way round. Mm. English tends to take on words from other languages, but the Germans and the Russians quite like the idea of Mr Boycott. Right.
0: Oh, the, Fre- the French grab a lot of English, who, don't they? Le Weekend, the, <laughs> Le Beefsteak. Yes, steak. <laughs> yes <the> beef steak. <laughs> Although they stomp their foot and try and fix it, but it's like herding cats. They've got that, the French, have got that stupid organisation, the Council of How to Speak, or whatever it's called.
3: And they won't use the CERN English Channel. The what? The English Channel. Uh, uh, Fre- French find that rather pretentious. That oh, Eng- do they? That England owns
0: the Channel. They call it that oh, right, 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 And <laughs> th- 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 syphilis, I think, it was the English disease. And in France, it's a French disease. <laughs> Is that yeah, true? yeah. <laughs> OK. So a lot of that gone- has gone on in Europe over the years, as well as things <laughs> going bang. OK. Uh, we'll take a short break. When we return, Max Cryer will address Gage and Gage, Lannis, Lannis- Tran- Tantrum, and racking one's brain. Life,
1: the universe,
0: and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Max Cry here, answering your questions on the English language. And it's a funny old thing. It's got so few consistent rules without exceptions. Sometimes exceptions uh, exceed the rules and spelling. It's hilarious, there are fossils in there from how we used to say stuff. And question on spelling and pronunciation. Gauge, as in G-A-U, is that how you spell it?
3: G-A-U-G-E. Gauge. Yes, that's how you spell it. Well, that's how you can spell it. Mm -hmm. That's how you usually spell it and that's where it is in the dictionary. Well, this is one piece of a jigsaw which is a very large jigsaw. I mean pronouncing the combination of A plus U, as in English. It's a nightmare. Here are some examples. Number one, cauliflower is spelt A-U, but it's pronounced O. Also, so is caustic soda, pronounced O, though it's A-U. By general usage, so is Australia, although some people call it Australia. The Queen does. Yes, she does. Number two, laughter is spelt A-U, but it's pronounced A, as in aunt. And three, number three, many times you'll find A-U is pronounced or, as in audience, applaud, authentic, launch, staunch, jaunty, inaugurate, haunt, taunt, audible. Then we come to category number four. A-U is sometimes heard as ow, or or, as in trauma, sometimes called trauma. And then virtually all alone, there's number five, Gage, where A-U is heard as A. Right. Oh,
0: well, this is a lovely exception to um, propose, then. It's extraordinary. Um...
3: It's really one of the most difficult things I've had to deal with this year because I had to go through all of the words that have AU in the middle of them and I find there are five different pronunciations. Now, there could be a hundred reasons why these variations have come about, but we are stuck with them. And most of the time we aren't confused because we're we're accustomed to it. We're we're used to the oddity. But it's strange that the listener picked combination number five, where AU comes out as A in gauge. And the word gauge seems to be The only example. Wow. It's difficult to find any any other ordinary English word in common use with a-u pronounced a. I I would have difficulty finding any. Mm -hmm. Now, the only reason for this is the history. What we call gauge comes from a word in ancient French, galgo, meaning a measuring rod. And one variant of that developed into the English word gallows. But the old French galgo developed into another variant, Gage, a rod for measuring, which is believed to be the ancestor of our word gauge, meaning devices and indications of various measurements. So, as far as I can find, the answer is there is no clear reason why gauge is spelt G-A-U-G-E, but is pronounced gauge. However, I have good news. Here is a piece of good news. I've researched language authorities who analyse these sort of things and they have decreed that it has now become fairly normal when you're writing the word gauge, it is perfectly acceptable to write G-A-G-E. No, it's it, not. It, well, that's what I've been told and I'm telling the listener. A gauge? You. Really? Yes. Uh, well, the quote, one of the theor- authorities I read quoted here, the option is in the spelling, things change according to use, yeah. and gauge is consistently pronounced as gauge, so it's now often spelt that way and acceptably so. Uh,
0: the A-E is disappearing too from a lot of things like an-aesthetic. and yes. The Haya-Morridge. Yes.
3: But gauge, is, spelt a, gauge a. is a nasty one because A-U sort of puts your mind. Yeah. Yeah. On a pickle. Oh, Gorg. What, how are you supposed to say that? Gorg. Drop, drop it and just say
0: Gage. Galga. Gage. Gage. I'm <laughs> fascinating history of Gage. The lone <laughs> wolf in the A-team. All right. Uh, I hope that is somewhat satisfying. Lambast and tantrum.
3: Two words yeah. uh, forwarded to you, Max? Yes. Well, lambast means to scold, to castigate verbally, criticise severely. It's been in use, that word, English since the, uh, well, since the 1600s. It comes from a rather strange source. Lamb is borrowed from Norwegian, where it means to beat or thrash. And bust is an old word of some kind of Scandinavian origin, meaning tough tissue fibre from the hemp plant. And in combination with lamb, meaning to scold and criticise, plus bust or base, meaning strong fiber, you get an image of being whipped, not necessarily literally, but scolded and spoken to with intent to shame, to bestow guilt or express severe anger, as if you were being really whipped with strong cords, but not with them, only with loud words. So that's the only explanation available about why the word lambast means what it means, where it comes from. Well, we have to move on to tantrum, and I'm very sorry to have to tell Everybody knows that tantrum means brief, explosive, noisy display of outrage, temper, antisocial behaviour, but there is no recorded ancestry I could find anywhere. Get out, really? It's very rare that that, is hap- that that happens, but this is the case. Every dictionary and anthology says there is no known evidence. It's not English, it's not French, it's not German, it's not Scandinavian, and it's been in use for over 200 years, but it didn't come from anywhere else. It appears we can only say something which is very unusual. It is an English word. Right. Purely... No known ancestor. No known ancestor.
0: Right. It just appeared.
3: Bing! And it wouldn't be ping. Um, things, words tend to
0: appear slowly, if you know what I mean. But it had to start somewhere, and if they used tantrum one day, it had to be a day, didn't it? When someone um, said tantrum.
3: Yes, b- yes, but my life is taken up with the days before that day. Mm.
0: Anyway, we, the there's some other words to do that t- that have just appeared appearing, apparently, <laughs> apparently out of nowhere. Things like dog. No one knows where dog came from. Dog. That's weird, yeah, dog.
3: I'm glad we've got it, though. I like the word dog. It's good, isn't it? It has immediate warmth.
0: Oh, and it's simple. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't muck about.
3: No. All right. So shall we look at racking the
0: brain? Yes, because I was fascinated as well when uh, somebody asked, why do we rack our brain? And it's a WR (coughs) rack. It's difficult. Uh, Yes, it's WR.
3: It's quite right. It is a word, rack. Mm. W-R-C-K. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It's been in English for several hundred years. It's usually in connection with something unwelcome, being visited on someone. As a verb, it was originally to wreak, W-R-E-A-K. Oh! To draw destructive powers or events into focus, to cause hostile action towards another person. Um, It will still be heard in the term to wreak havoc. But as a descriptor, in a phrase like rack and ruin, it remains as rack and not as rick and again refers to something or someone in bad shape or condition as a verb it means causing severe strain of activity as in wrecking your brain yeah. which separates it from the similar word wreck because you're not wrecking your brain you're racking it meaning you're extending it and using it in its uh, to its ultimate capacity um as a noun the rack A rack is a thing which has been damaged past usefulness, often used about a ship. A ship which is dead can be referred to as a rack, with weeds and sea plants washed up on the shore etymologists grudgingly agree that although rack and wreck are two different words, they're sometimes heard to be used interchangeably. I don't fully agree with that because if you said to me, Graham, that you'd had a busy weekend and you'd been racking your brain to remember something, I would understand straight away. But you would never say, I've been wreaking my brain to remember
0: something. Or wrecking it either. Or
3: wrecking it either. No. No. So rack has this sort of weird meaning of hammering at something to get to to the answer.
0: I... Immediately thought I'm obviously wrong, but I probably won't be the only one. It it, it seemed to me like racking was uh, it would make sense if it was like you were torturing your brain. You felt tortured in trying to find a solution, and I thought it might have had something to do with the rack as a torture device.
3: That didn't usually have a W. No. I remember uh, as a pianist, I was coming a singer years ago, and there is a song that people do called The Rack about a ship, oh. and at the time I was sort of uncomfortable. Um, I I knew she wasn't mispronouncing it because I had the music in front of me at the piano, and uh, the climax of the song was The Rack, The Rack, The Rack, and it just sounded so weird to a modern audience. I did not think it was a good choice because... Just say Rack instead. Muck around with it. Do fix it. Um, yes, all right, I'll tell her of <laughs> <laughs> Now, we have a holiday coming up. Yeah. Well, no, we've talked about the holiday, so we'll talk about today. 56 years ago today, the launching of the first course of the newly established Outward Bound School in Anakiwa in Marlborough Sounds. The school was modelled on a predecessor in Wales and it offered courses of 23 days to boys, training them in teamwork, self-discipline, and 36 boys from all around New Zealand attended this first course 56 years ago today. But you'll be pleased to know that gradually the establishment to include availability for girls also went into place.
0: Uh, Are they still going? I don't know, I'm not putting you on the spot. You don't know? No? Oh well. Um, If they are, good on you. It's a good thing to do. Fresh air and exercise, Max. That's what it's all about. Yes. And teamwork. Uh, Thank you very much, Max. Enlightening as always. Later on this evening, uh, Grant Smithies is back. He's had a break for a while. Uh, We're reviewing albums. We re- re Restart, we continue uh, with albums turning 40 and this week we have a look at Linton Quasi Johnson's debut album. It was with a cat called Dennis Bovell who did the music, Linton Quasi Johnson, the poetry. Um, And that was a marriage that was going to continue. It still goes today. He's never used anybody else. And Dennis Bovell, oh man, here's something else. Oh, I rate him anyway. You can make up your own mind. This, without the poetry, Dennis Bovel's beautiful dub rig.